Hey, podcast listener, thanks for downloading Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. I'm delighted that you're taking your time out of your week to listen to the show. I hope it's a benefit and blessing to you. We take up the question of confession and absolution in the first segment, and then Pastor Brian Flammy joins me to talk about this question, the problem of religious plurality. How do we address it both individually and apologetically in the Church? I hope you'll enjoy it. Man, I learned a lot from Pastor Flammy. He's got a lot to say. I included some extensive show notes in the blog post. You'll find that at wolfmuller.co. And thanks again for being the podcast listener that you are. God's peace be with you. Here's the show. Hey! Welcome to Cross Defense. God be praised. It's another week. Another time to open the Bible to consider the joy that the Lord has for us there. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. I think last week I said Austin, Colorado. And then someone sent me a note and says there actually is an Austin, Colorado. If you're in Austin, Colorado, God bless you. It's probably cooler than it is here in Austin, Texas, which is where I am. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about, hmm, I got an email from someone asking about the repentance, basically, and about confession and absolution. So we're going to talk about that for a little bit. I'm going to tell you the story. The first time I saw a pastor standing up there, forgiving my sins, standing there in a dress, what the heck is happening here? I, so we'll talk about that and what the Bible says about it. And then second, uh, on the second segment and third segment, we're going to have Pastor Brian Flammy come on. We've got to add some brain power to the show. So Pastor Flammy is going to come on, and this might be, depending on how he does, if he makes the cut, this might be the first of us. <laughs> this might be the first of a series answering apologetics questions. Pastor Flammy, what a great friend uh, he is uh, to me, and he finished writing a book called Apologetic Opportunism. It, in fact, it's his master's thesis for his Masters of Sacred Theology, and it it takes a look at all the different kind of styles or schools of apologetics. It's a great little read. And uh, it's an academic sort of thing, so if you like to read stuff with footnotes, this is good for, uh, for you. And it kind of walks through the different apologetic approach. But he's been thinking about a lot of these questions, so we're going to take up various different questions. And we're going to start with the problem of other religions, the problem of re religious plurality. Uh, what do we have to say to people who, you know, this happens to us individually, where we realize, wait a minute, other people believe different stuff. What, what does that mean? And then it also happens probably just as a thinking objection to Christianity, where we we say, well, why? how could there be so many different religions? If there's one God, if there's one thing that's true, then how could we get so many different religions? So we're going to talk to Pastor Flammy about that, see what he has to say. He said he's been, he's been writing notes all day, is what he told me. So we'll see. I haven't seen any of the notes. But by the time he comes on, I'm sure I'll have them. Josh asks, uh, Pastor Wolfmuller, can you, do, uh, can you talk about confession and absolution? and deal with how we receive forgiveness. Perhaps this would be a good topic for your radio show or one of your videos. Thanks for all you do. Thanks, Josh. This is a great, a great question. Uh, confession and absolution. Uh, it's one of the unique, hmm, let me say, it's a unique thing in the Lutheran Church, but maybe not because, you know, we have the Catholic, every time we talk about confession and absolution, at least individual confession and absolution, people say, that's so... Roman Catholic, and they remember the, the the people going into the confessional booth to confess their sins and all that sort of stuff. So, so let's think about what the Bible says about it. The first thing we want to realize is that the Bible talks about confession in three different and unique ways. Uh, there is so, and this is confessing our sins, not even confessing the faith, but specifically confessing of sins happens in three distinct uh, different ways. The first is the general confession to God of all of our sins, both the ones that we know and also the ones that we don't even know about, so that the Christian is confessing their sins to God. John writes, if you say you have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we've deceived ourselves and the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what we're praying for in the Lord's Prayer, where we pray, forgive us our trespasses, or Psalm 19, which says, forgive our hidden faults. So whenever we know something that we have done wrong, that we some way that we have broken God's commandments, we want to confess that sin. We want to say, Lord, I'm sorry. Have mercy on me, a sinner. In fact, that's what the basic prayer of the Christian is. Lord, have mercy. 
Kyria Eliason. That's the that's what the beggars would pray in Greek as they sat on the side of the street and people would come through the city gates and they would pray, Lord, have mercy. It's what blind Bartimaeus outside of Jericho prays to Jesus, Lord, have mercy. And every time the church gets together, we pray, Lord, have mercy. In fact, and here this is an aside, but an interesting aside, every time the, the, we pray, for example, the the divine service or any of the liturgies, matins, vespers, compline, evening prayer, any of the different liturgies, there's two prayers that are always included in every liturgy of the church, even the individual liturgies. And those two prayers are the Lord's Prayer and the Kyrie eleison, the, the Lord have mercy. So that we're always begging the Lord for mercy. Now that is the, that's the first and most important kind of confession, and, and it's required every Christian is confessing their sins. I heard someone say one time that we don't have to confess our sins because we're not sinners anymore. This was a preacher who said that. I'm not a poor, miserable sinner. Now, that is just a lie. I mean, again, from John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. There's not a single point in this life that we don't need the forgiveness that Jesus has to bring to us. The second kind of confession is also required in the Scriptures, and that is that we confess our sins to the people that we've sinned against. Confess your sins to one another. If you've if you've caused your if you have something against your brother, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go to them. That when we sin against someone and we recognize that we've sinned against them, then we want to go to them and confess that sin, and ask for mercy, ask for their forgiveness, and also do whatever we can to make it right. That's part of the fruit of repentance when we're confessing our sins to one another. But the chief thing is that we go and we confess our sins. Uh, the Christian ought to be uh, always willing to to humble themselves and go in and beg uh, for forgiveness for the people that they've sinned against. That's just one of the marks of the Christian. And the Christian also ought to be ready to forgive all those people that have sinned against them when they come uh, with repentance. So that when someone comes to you and says, hey, I, I'm really sorry for that thing that I said or the thing that I did, I... I don't know why I did it, or even I do know why I did it, I, but I should not have. I, I was wrong when I did that thing or said that thing or whatever. The Christian wants to be always ready to forgive the sin committed against him. Now, this is a very practical thing because, <laughs> because, because there's this t the temptation. I mean, I, I know it, and no doubt all of you know it, is that someone comes and they apologize, and what do we do? We don't say, I forgive you. It's hard to say, I forgive you, and we'll talk about why. But we say, oh, don't worry about it. It's okay. Forget it. Don't even think about it. No big deal. That's what we, all, that's what we always want to say. When someone, sins, now, why, when someone sins against us, we want to say that's no, it's not a big deal. Now, why? I, I think one of the reasons why is because, is because forgiveness hurts. If you sin against me, you say something bad about me or whatever. Let's just play that thing out. You... you you uh, spread bad rumors about me behind my back, and then you come to me and you say, Hey, uh, Brian, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry I said that about you. I'm really sorry that I did that. I, ho I, hope, you'll for I hope you'll forgive me. Now, if I say, and watch what happens. If I say, I forgive you, then I'm admitting, aren't I, that you did in fact hurt me, that the thing that you did, in one way or another, it got to me. It, to, to say it how people talk, it wounded me, or whatever, it affected me. In fact, when we say this, when we say, uh, don't worry about it, what we're saying is that you can't reach me, that I'm so far above you, that you can sin against me and it doesn't bother me. But if, if we say, I forgive you, what we're saying is that the person does, in fact, have the power or the whatever to hurt us, and that when we say, I forgive you, we're admitting that and we're opening it up to, to that pain and that hurt can actually come to us again. That not only have you hurt me in the past, but you can probably still hurt me in the future. That the, That forgiveness of sins in some ways it requires pain and it requires suffering that that's why that, that forgiveness isn't just some sort of arbitrary sort of thing like god in, can can just stand up in heaven in the clouds and say poof forgiveness and to kind of declare it that suff that forgiveness itself the act of forgiveness involves suffering it's no accident that jesus has to suffer to win for us the forgiveness of sins this is all bound up together so as christians as we confess our sins to one another we want to make sure that we don't just say oh fine don't worry about it whatever but that we want to forgive one another that we would say this to the person who hurt us 
I forgive you. I don't hold it against you. Now, this, this does have some practical questions, like, for example, if there's fear of, of being physically harmed or, or being wounded and hurt again, does that mean that, you know, that we don't make provisions for our own safety or for the children's safety? No, uh, that, that's not the case. But a true and, and genuine forgiveness is going to not hold that person accountable uh, for their sins. It's going to release them. If the law needs to hold them accountable, let the law hold them accountable. If the, if the prison or justice needs to hold them accountable, let them hold them accountable. But we're not going to be the ones holding them accountable. That's the Christian forgiveness, one person to another. But then there's a third kind of forgiveness, and this is what we call individual confession and absolution. And it's where the Christian goes to the pastor or to another Christian and confesses their sins and asks for forgiveness, and that person forgives them. It's really quite wonderful. I mean, it's really fantastic. And, and we want to rejoice in this forgiveness. It's what Jesus is talking about in, in, Luke, in, in John chapter 20 when he breathes on them. And he says, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And whoever sins you do not forgive, they are not forgiven. This is the, this is the word of Jesus to, to bind and to loose. And he gives that authority to the Christian church. It's really quite stunning. Now, this kind of forgiveness, interestingly enough, this kind of forgiveness is not required by this Holy Scriptures. We're required to confess all our sins to God, and we're required to, uh, to, to confess our sins when we sin against one another. But this is left very free for us. This confessing to a Christian, to a pastor, is left, is left totally free because it's retained for the sake of the gospel. Now, I remember the first time I went to a liturgical service as an adult. I went to the Lutheran church, and there was this pastor standing up there. And what do we do? We all said, hey, we're sinners. And then this pastor turned around, and he said, and he said I forgive you all your sins. And I said, what? What is he? Who does that guy think he is, Jesus? Only God can forgive sins, I said, like the Pharisees. <laughs> But I suppose it's true enough, only God can forgive sins, but Jesus gives us his authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus says, whoever's sins you forgive, I forgive. So that it's actually us, the Christian, doing the forgiving. It's the Christian forgiving sins. It's amazing. It's a stunning sort of thing, really. So that Jesus gives us the authority to pronounce the absolution. Now, every, every Christian does this, especially the pastor, has the office of doing this publicly, of standing in front of the Lord's people and declaring sins to be forgiven. And, and, and this can happen also for individually. Now, I'd encourage you, if you have a sin that's sort of, you know how you've seen the dogs try to eat peanut butter and it, it gets stuck on the roof of their mouth like this and they just can't get it out. Sometimes sin, we get sins like that in our conscience. It's like a, it's like a splinter that kind of digs in and it gets stuck there and we, and we cannot, can't kind of reach it to pry it out on ourselves. And so we go to the, especially the pastors are trained to do this sort of thing. We say, Hey, I got a sin to confess. And we confess our sins. And the, what is the pastor ready to do? He's ready to put his hands right on our head. And he says, I forgive you in the name of Jesus. Your sin is forgiven. That the Lord who has died for all sins has died for this sin as well. It's gone. It's gone. There's no, there's no greater joy. In fact, Martin Luther said, I'd walk a thousand miles to hear the absolution. There's no greater joy to go and hear that this particular sin, the sin that's troubling us, to, to even speak it out loud. Say, man, oh man, look what I've done to dishonor the Lord's name and and to hear what the Lord says about it, that it's forgiven. Simply beautiful. Now here's the picture to help it make sense, and hopefully this is helpful. you got to imagine that you're sitting in a jail cell across the street from the courthouse, and your case is being heard by the judge in the courthouse. And someone brings in evidence, it's Jesus who brings the evidence of his blood, and so the, so the judge makes a pronouncement, and he says, he says, you're free, in my case, it's, Brian is free. He can go. And the bailiff, who's there to hear the verdict, carries the key across the street and opens the cell and says, I set you free. Now, what if we say, no, 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 only the judge can set me free. 
You don't have the authority to set me. Only the judge can set me free. And we stay in the open cell. No, the bailiff comes not on his own authority, but on the authority of the words spoken by the judge who gave him the key and said, unlock the cell. Whoever you set free, I set free. This is, this is the authority is not the bailiff's authority. It is the judge's authority. But the bailiff exercises that authority on behalf of the judge. Now, things could go wrong in the picture, right? What if the judge says, no, he's not free, and the bailiff comes and says, I set you free, and you go wandering around. Are you free? Well, sort of. You can walk around and play golf and whatever, but you eventually you'll get caught and put back in prison. Or, or what if the judge says, I set him free, and the bailiff goes fishing? Well, then you're sitting there in prison, even though, the, even though the judgment has already been given for your freedom. So when Jesus breathes on the disciples, that's what he's saying. I've died for the sins of the world, and now I'm authorizing you to go and to preach this forgiveness, to distribute this forgiveness in my name in every place, to every sinner, to all who have been died for by Christ. God be praised. And how do we receive it? That was part of Josh's question. How do we receive the forgiveness of sins? It's best that we receive the forgiveness of sins by hearing the absolution. There's no, there's no replacement for this. We don't wait to feel forgiven, because if we wait to feel forgiven, then who knows, we'll never get there. We don't, we don't wait, wait to be actually perfect in our lives. We'll never get there that way either. We want to hear the promise of the forgiveness of sins and the preaching of the gospel and the giving of the absolution and hearing that. that in fact, that hearing of the gospel creates and sustains faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. So that very word of forgiveness creates and sustains faith in Christ, who's won that forgiveness for us. God be praised. Well, Josh, thank you for the question. I hopefully, hopefully that's, that's helpful. And that brings us, in fact, to the end of the first segment. So we're going to take a short break, see if we can find Pastor Flammy, see what he's up to, and come back and talk about the problem of religious pluralism. Stay tuned. You're listening to Cross Defense, and we will be right back. I got to write another book, A Martyr's Faith for a Faithless World. CPH published it just a couple of weeks ago. I wrote it for my daughter, for my other kids who are going out into the world, their faith being challenged by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we dig into the parable of the sower to see how Jesus would protect our faith from these assaults. If it's something that you're looking for, if that would be helpful for you or someone you love, I hope you'll take a look. A Martyr's Faith for a Faithless World, available at Amazon or Barnes & anywhere you get books, especially cph.org has it available. Let me know what you think. All right. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. And I've got, I think, Pastor Brian Flammy, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico, on the line. Pastor Flammy, you there? Yeah, I'm here. How are you? I'm great. Is it under 100 degrees there? You know what? We saw rain for like the thir- first time in three months last night, and so it's a balmy <laughs> 95 outside. We're so fortunate. It finally rained here the other day, and I thought, oh, that'll be nice and cool. And I went outside, and it was like getting into a shower. So yeah. hot. <laughs> hey, uh, congratulations, by the way. I don't think I've publicly congratulated you on finishing this project, Apologetic Opportunism. Uh, the place of Lutheran apologetics in, or, or something, a place of apologetics in Lutheran dogmatic theology, your STM thesis, which was a, 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 a thing, and it's great that it's finished. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy it's done. And uh, thank <laughs> you for reading it. And thank you to the three people out there who, who may read it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That'll be three more people than most STM theses. Am I allowed to say that kind of thing? Yeah, sure, of course. Uh, I mean, it stops at the thesis committee, usually. The funny (laughs) thing is, when it comes to apologetics literature, there are a handful of handy volumes out there uh, available in libraries across the country that are pretty much self-published apologetics handbooks. Hmm. Uh, So, like this, uh, I have this uh, nifty little volume on uh, evidential apologetics, especially set in the courtroom. 
this guy wrote an STM thesis at a, a, a not even a Lutheran seminary, at some Christian seminary somewhere, uh, taking up a lot of John Warwick Montgomery's arguments and ex- expanding them. And uh, that ends up in a lot of the literature, but it's just some guy's self-published book through Zulon or something like that. Hmm. So we need more of these things, right? I mean, everybody's kind of going at it by themselves, but it'd be good to sort of to 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 work it out um, in, in some, I don't know in in some sort of workroom or kind of put it all together. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that would be it would be fun to give uh, a lot of the the theologians that we have at our synod a wider reading uh, to let folks read uh, uh, their work and uh, consider it for its own value and how it leads them into the Holy Scriptures. It's great, if, especially if they do good work, good biblical Christian work, if it benefits more people than just the committee that passed the thesis, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It I think we a, need to do that. So that's one of the reasons I wanted yeah. to get your book in print. We got it, I think, is it... I don't know if I put it up. I think I did on the website, wolfmuller.co. If people are interested in apologetic opportunism, they can find it there under the book section or search for Flammy or something or send me a note. Uh, we got that up there, which is a lot of fun. I don't, this is, I don't know. I don't think, I think of this kind of series that we'll work on as kind of a victory lap, although it's more than that because what, what I asked you to consider, this is what we're going to start today is if we could take on some of these big, apologetic questions or some of these questions that face the thinking Christian as they live and as they as they talk with their neighbor and as they as they live in this fallen world some of these questions come up and they stand at least at first glance they stand against our Christian confession and so I want I want to reflect on those and 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 talk about them with you that's that's what we're up to here is that we're on the same page there right yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. The first question, I thought that you said I rec- thought of this question. I think you thought. Well, anyway, no matter. The first question we want to think about is what the problem of pluralism. Is that the right way to think about it? The fact that, and I think this happened, this, this problem occurs to us existentially as individuals, but also in sort of. of, of uh, in reflection also as Christians, and that is this question of why are there so many other religions? There's that kind of moment in our own life where where we realize, all of a sudden we realize that other people believe other stuff. Like the first time you meet the Lutheran meets a Baptist, or the first time a Catholic meets a Jehovah's Witnesses, or the first time a Christian meets a Hindu or, or a Muslim right. or whatever. And you start to well, think, gotta, wait, wait a minute. I ask you about that. I got to ask you about that because I I I was racking my brain going through my own unique experience of the world and I think since the time I was a little little kid my parents have always been telling me about the heathen and the heathen believe x y and z and when you speak to what the unbelievers uh, uh say you have to say this this and this about what you believe and about hmm. what it means to be a christian and so I have this distinct memory of being like 5 years old sitting on this street curb, you know, at our apartment complex, uh, arguing with some kid who is just, an, you know, some Baptist kid. And telling him, you don't believe this, this, and this about Jesus, but this is what you should believe, and here's why. And I had this long argument with the kid who had no idea what was going on. So my expectation from the time I was really young was that people actually believed very different things than I believe, and it was in some ways my job to help convince them of the truth. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I suppose there, there is this experience of someone who lives in a very sheltered and isolated life. They, they have no expectation of running into someone who, who seriously believes another set, of can, uh, another set of beliefs or another set of truth claims. And when they come into contact with these folks and they see that they're not evil, right? They're not being uh, uh, deceitful. They're not lying about what they believe. Then, uh, then they, they I, I suppose the argument goes, then they're challenged in what they individually believe. Uh, that, that could happen. I just don't know if it happens all that often. I think that Christians are, are given the expectation that, in fact, the world is very different uh, from what their family believes and teaches and confesses and what their church believes and teaches and confesses from the Holy Scriptures. Hmm. I think I remember. Let me see. When is it? Probably 
you know, I so I grew up in the ELCA, the kind of liberal church, and that's I don't know. There these they despised drawing these distinctions between the different confessions. But then I, I got involved. I, I I went to an evangelical church camp when I was a young man, and that's my first experience of the conversion experience. And I think I went to Southern Baptist VBS, and then in high school it was all into that. And and there it was a little bit different because it had that same sort of idea, like it was the it was the the them and the us distinction, and um, and everyone else out there is is not is not like us. But it did it, that came a little bit later for me. Um, but the, the, it was the them and the us in the in the evangelistic idea of you ought to be with with Jesus. It wasn't it wasn't a, any sort of I don't know bigotry or xenophobia or anything. It was just a Hey, you gotta you gotta be on Team Jesus. That was that was the basic idea. Um, well, so okay, so so on so lay out the problem then for us. Of okay, so yeah, yeah, uh, of religious pluralism. Like you said, I think that there's an individual way to approach this, and then there's a more uh, studied, objective way in which the academy or uh, philosophy handles this. So individually. Uh, uh, you you come into into contact with someone who holds a different set of convictions and beliefs from you, right? Uh, and uh, presumably, according to the story that, that you gave, uh, this challenges the validity of your own beliefs. Because the, uh, for whatever reason, I suppose that people have this instinct that the truth has an attractive value to it. That if something is true, then necessarily it is drawing people to itself. Uh, and, and, and so that it, the truth is never unknown, but it's always drawing people to, to re- see it, to realize it, to accept it, right? Uh, uh, it, it, and so to come into contact with as much conviction as you have, who has as much conviction as you have in their uh, different set of uh, religious beliefs, it challenges you. Now, here's, here's an argument that we'll start in the individual and we'll move out to the more objective. Uh, but here's the argument that if you are a decent humble, moral person. And when you observe that another decent, humble, and moral person has a set of beliefs that differ from your own, and uh, they're convinced of those beliefs with the same fervor as you are convinced of yours, then you ought to display a kind of forbearance towards them, not necessarily assuming that they're wrong, but rather entertaining conversation with them, uh, exploring exactly what they believe and how they believe it, why did they come to the convictions that they have, and while you're entering into this this dialogue and, and this conversation, that your own beliefs are now open to reflection and examination, and perhaps even the wisest course as you're going into this conversation is to, for the sake of respect of the other, to suspend in some way uh, uh, your own insistence on on uh, on your beliefs that that perhaps you could set it up, set it aside just for the sake of the truth so that you can have a genuine dialogue instead of just being uh, a cruel and unfair person and forcing your beliefs on someone uh, for no other reason than you're right and they're wrong you know you're prejudiced in that way hmm. uh, okay so that's I, I suppose that this is uh, I remember being in college this idea of suspending your beliefs until they've been validated was uh, pushed around, if not among the professors, then certainly among the students. And anyone who had a kind of fervency of belief uh, and, and, and uh, insisted on the truth of their own, be- their own beliefs, be they religious or philosophical, those people were especially seen to be, well, how do we say this, not amenable to the academic conversation. <laughs> um, all right, so... This, this problem, the problem of religious pluralism, um, we could speak about that objectively, uh, even historically. So, and, so, uh, so make sure we, I don't, I don't oh, miss yeah, this yeah. point. So, so it's, what it comes sure. is that when we enter into these conversations, in order to, almost for just for the sake of kindness, what we do is we, we put more doubt on our own beliefs than we do on our neighbor's belief. That we have this sort of natural tendency to do such a thing. Yeah, I think that this is probably a reaction against defensiveness. I mean, we all realize that when I come into a situation in which I thought I was right, and now there's the possibility of being wrong, 
and the possibility of there being another view on the situation that might be even better than the one that I have, right? Uh, we have this inclination to get defensive, to put up the walls, to insist on being right no matter what, to shield ourselves from the pain that it will cause, the, the, the personal pain that it will cause of, of uh, coming to grips with the fact that, you know what, I was arrogant, I, was, uh, I thought I believed these things that are true, but it turns out that it was wrong. Now, that's a tough position to be in. And so you could understand why somebody gets defensive. I, I question my kids at home about whether or not they did something. And I know what they did. But they get defensive and insist mm-hmm. <laughs> on, their, mm-hmm. on their explanation of what happened, right? Uh, so it's something that the kids do. It's something that we bring into adult life. And perhaps the setting aside uh, of your own beliefs for the sake of the conversation uh, is a reaction to that. Hmm. Okay. Okay. But that's just the individual thing. But there's a bigger way that this problem comes to us. What, what is that? Yeah, that's right. So uh, during the... Uh, uh, well, the, through the vast majority of the Christian church's history, the Christian church was seen to be the, the bearer of the truth, right? That from the Christian church, in the Christian church, uh, you had preaching and baptism that would convert souls from error and uh, uh, the, the crass pagan uh, idolatries to the truth, to the real religion of Christianity. Well, uh, during the Enlightenment of the 17th and during the 1700s and the 1800s, uh, that it, it's, uh, its uh, influence upon Western civilization is profound. Um, people started uh, uh, questioning their tacit beliefs in the validity of Western tradition and the validity of uh, religious belief. And, and uh, so, for instance, Immanuel Kant, prominent uh, enlightenment, enlightenment philosopher, perhaps the most prominent of them all, uh, had this idea that, well, perhaps instead of, instead of us getting wrapped around the axle uh, as to whether or not the Reforms are right or the Lutherans are right, perhaps we could just say that they both are bearers of the one true religion, except that the one true religion has many different kinds of exp- exp- like religious faith expressions for, that, for the true religion. And that Kant insisted upon, well, the one true religion is perhaps that which is in moral conformity to the dictates of practical reason, right? Hmm. And so I could identify the true religion by which one most best practices what he felt to be moral, <laughs> what, Kant, or what Kant would argue to be that was uh, reasonably demonstrable to be moral, right? Uh, and, and what that ended up being was what actually a good Lutheran or a good Reformed person would do in their life. Uh, it, it resembled very much what, what uh, uh, you would have expected of a Western European who is a moral, upright person. So, uh, now, that's what, just thinking about the distinction between law and gospel, and I suppose this is yeah. right. If you want to find a, a something that everyone has access to, you, you just go to natural law and say everyone has access to natural law. So let's just call natural law, what did he call it here, the one, the one true religion? And then all these different various yeah. expressions of faith and names of God and all this sort of stuff. These are what? These are different sort of toppings that all sit on the same cake. So, the, so the Enlightenment idea here that that uh, Kant was onto, and a lot of other Enlightenment philosophers and thinkers were onto, was that you can actually identify what is essential to religion and what is true religion by the dictates of reason. And so you had this. Uh, uh, this term that came about uh, in, in, during the time of the Enlightenment called natural religion. And natural religion is what you get when you boil down religion and you burn off all of the traditions and the chasubles and the candles and what the Pope says and even what the Lutherans say. When you boil it all down and make it all conform to reason, then that natural religion is the real thing. And then you could say, well, all these different religions are just, they're striving after the true natural religion, but they have, you know, some things that are right in conformity with it, other things that are wrong. Uh, but this is the central thing that they're grasping at. And because we are, you know, the luminaries of our time, the enlightened ones, at least we have it, <laughs> right? And so this is where you got the, the rationalistic preaching during the time of the enlightenment in the Lutheran and Reformed churches. You went to church and you heard a very reasonable sermon about how to plant your crops, but you weren't necessarily going to hear about the unreasonableness of God becoming man in the person of Christ. 
and mm. suffering for the sin of the world, giving himself up as a sacrifice. There's very little there that conforms to natural or, or human reason, and so that would have been set aside for something that was more practical, something that you could understand with your mind. We'll run through, I think, two other historical things then. So the reaction to that via Schleiermacher and then Hume, and then and then to make some con- kind of clarifying points on what that means for our conversation today. But we're, we're staring down a break. So we'll, let's do that now. Let's go to the break. This will be a quick one. We'll go to the break. We'll head right back, and we'll talk some more about uh, the problem of religious plurality uh, with Pastor Brian Flammy. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfman. You're listening to Cross Defense. We'll be right back. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 10 states, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Find this true wisdom in Christ on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on Worldwide KFUO. Sharpen the iron of your faith together with two pastors as they take up the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the gifts of Christ crucified and risen for you. All right, I'm Pastor Brian Wolf, there, host of Cross Defense. That's what you're listening to. Pastor Flammy is here, who was telling me about the end of the introduction of the problem of religious pluralism under Immanuel Kant, which I have a question about. But then also, Pastor Flammy, we're gonna now this is our last segment, and I'm looking at your notes. We're gonna have to move quick to a couple of things. But here's to start maybe with this with Immanuel Kant. What's really interesting is that his idea of pluralism was in fact not pluralistic but rather theomonistic in other words there's only one theology one true religion and everything else is a is an expression of that one true religion and so what he was trying to avoid was the divisiveness of the various different truths and i had never quite seen it that clearly but that's also probably what's happening today when people say well, you believe this, you believe that. It's all the, basically the same. It's pluralism is in fact a reductionistic move to where there's only this kind of religious feeling or religious sentiment that's that's one and undivided. Yeah. So what Kant is saying is that that what is actually true about God is so transcendent that we can only approximate or come close to the truth. So some religions, Kant would admit, are more close to the truth than others. And those are the truer religions. And that would be like, you know, the Reform slash Lutheran tradition in Germany uh, that he was uh, in the middle of, right? Uh, and and uh, yes, that absolutely captures that thought that you hear many times uh, people express today where they say, well, they're all basically teaching the same thing, that there's this truth out there. And Christianity, or at least what the Lutherans confess from the Bible, is just one approximation to that truth. Maybe it's a little bit closer than what the Roman Catholics say. Maybe it's a little bit further away than what the Baptists say. But who's to, who's to really say, especially if the truth in and of itself is so transcendent that it escapes uh, uh, the bounds of language and experience? Uh, yeah. I'm going to give you two minutes to go from from Kant to right now. What are the main things we need to know about that? <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so, of course, Kant wasn't the last word on uh, religion in, at the time of the Enlightenment. Friedrich Schleiermacher, the court theologian there in Germany who helped to push together the Prussian Union, he also redefines religion less about the, what, what they taught, and, 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 but he defined it around a shared experience, a shared religious experience that feeling of absolute dependence on something that is beyond you. And, uh, and, and so he said that uh, these uh, different communities of faith, be it the Reformed or the Lutheran or whoever, uh, they were just uh, communities that had similar shared experiences of that absolute dependence on God. And so it, it wasn't surprising at all that there are different religions. In fact, according to how he uh, understood uh, uh, the variety of human experience, it just made sense. Uh, this also has gained a lot of traction in our time, because when people speak about religion as such today, they speak about it less as a collection of, of beliefs or assertions that must be assented to with knowledge or even by trust. Uh, but but uh, uh, instead, religion is uh, an experience, what you feel. It's a matter of the, 
of the heart in that way. And Schleiermacher plays into that. Well, well let's, let's uh, play around with the idea just for a second that we can test out these different religions and what they claim to be true against one another. Well, the argument became popular at the time of the Enlightenment uh, by David Hume, and it continues to be a persuasive argument today, that if you let the uh, uh, different religions engage in apologetics and theological polemics, that they all have different evidences on their side. And so we should consider the interreligious uh, fight about who's right and who's wrong to be a wash. Uh, that there's no way of really determining who's right and wrong in that. And the person who ends up winning is the person who suspended their beliefs to begin with, who wouldn't put themselves in one camp A or camp B. Uh, that person, the, the skeptic, the doubter, the unbeliever, is the one who's vindicated. Hmm. All right, so bringing it to today, uh, we could talk about pluralism, uh, which is the belief that all religions are equally valid and all offer effective ways of attaining their end so this is like the most hippie version of of this belief that you could get to like the hindus go to the hindu heaven <laughs> the buddhists go to oblivion or nirvana the christians get to go to their christian heaven maybe even the roman catholics get to go to purgatory before they go to heaven right but this begs the question how can they all be true how it doesn't even begin to make sense and so if there's one philosopher out there who says well perhaps they all end up at their particular heavens and this is like a the midpoint and then they all end up on the lost island and have to figure out a way off the island to get to the true heaven right so that's one of the ways the difficulty is uh, solved another uh, way the difficulty is solved is by a contemporary philosopher called john hick and when he asserts his version of pluralism, it's, it's a little bit more moderate. There are many paths in one destination. And just like Kant, he asserts that the real, the real divine thing that everybody's chasing after is part of not the phenomenal experience that we see and touch with our hands and, uh, and experience with our bodies, but it's part of this noumenal realm that is beyond experience and language. And so uh, all the, despite the fact that you have all these religions that have different truth claims about what they're after, uh, what Hicks says is that uh, they all are accurate in describing the real. And even though they apparently are in contradiction to one another on this phenomenal plane of existence, nevertheless, they accurately describe uh, uh, what the real is in their own terms, in their own setting, and how to best attain this, this real uh, destination be it heaven or the, the image or the, you know, the seeing that being able to see the face of God or whatever. Well, this is, <laughs> this hmm. is a, a, a little bit funny because it encompasses all the different religions, but it pretty much rejects them all at the same time. Well, yeah, you would have to insult every, I mean, when, when Hinduism, yeah. for example, says that there's multiple gods, it's rejecting the Muslim claim that there is only one God. Or when the Muslims yeah. claim that Jesus is the prophet, it's rejecting the Christian claim that Jesus is God. I mean, they, so you have to in you have to insult every religion by saying you don't really know what you're actually teaching to come to this conclusion. Yes, and it particularly insults the Christian religion by asserting that the real, the divine, is beyond human experience and language. This is a fundamental rejection of the incarnation and the assertion of Moses and the prophets and, and God himself, that he speaks and that he desires to, to commune with his creation through his word, through the spoken word, right? And so, uh, so instead of offering a, a kind of a nice solution to the problem of many religions, uh, what Hick does, I think, is pretty much goes up to each of the religions and slaps him in the face and slaps Christ the hardest, who is the incarnate Son of God. God has made himself ex experienced by us through his word, right? Through his, his preaching and his baptism and his sacrament. Uh, uh, if, Christ had, if God had not become flesh in the person of Christ, then we're still in our sins and we're still doomed. It is something, uh, it is amazing to yeah. me because the opposite of this pluralism is, I suppose, the Christian exclusivism. But it, it must be that Christianity is exclusive precisely because of what you talked about, because of the Incarnation, because because salvation is a his, historical fact, because Jesus was a particular man. The, it's the particular, particular, what is that word, particularity of the Gospel that that results in our 
in the exclusiveness of the Christian claim to to be the way to salvation. Yeah, that right. That that's right. Um, as soon as in the Holy Scriptures God speaks, it silences every other voice, or it should, or bring it to conformity to His voice and His word, His creation, and it's this. I, I suppose you would call a breaking away from the word that is, in fact, sin. This is how Satan sins, and this is how he tempts Adam and Eve to sin, by saying, did God really say? And then when God comes to redeem the creation through the incarnate word, right, it's Christ or nothing. It's his blood, it's his sacrifice for sin, for, for uh, the unbelief in the word, or it's nothing at all. And this is, in fact, exactly what the Holy Scriptures teach us. In Acts chapter 4.12, St. Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Hmm. Uh, and of course, you could pull into the, the, uh, to the ring uh, where Jesus says in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And again, in Luke chapter 10, he says, The one who hears you, speaking to the apostles, hears me. And the one who rejects you, Rejects me, meaning if you reject the preaching and the teaching of the apostles about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, you are rejecting Jesus, the Son of God, and rejecting the Father, and there is no life in you. That, that, that is to, so that is to say that, and, and not here at the beginning, that, or I guess we're actually at the end, but that, um, that, that Christianity must be right, but for Christianity to be Christianity, it must be the only truth is as soon as there are multiple ways uh, as soon as you as soon as the problem of religious diversity divulges into a pluralism where there's multiple ways to heaven you you no longer have christianity if it's not exclusive it's it is no longer the doctrine of jesus yeah that's absolutely right it uh, in fact when you assert the especially hicks uh, pluralism we are asserting as a religion that nobody actually believes in, except for maybe Hicks himself. <laughs> uh, uh, he, he asserts this religion that transcends all the other ones, but the individual religions, especially Christianity, uh, they, they can't go along with it or accept it. They reject him as, uh, necessarily, especially if God separates himself from the other religions by his word and through the incarnation of his son. So give so give us a couple of practical sort of so as this comes up in our own conversations or as we're talking with people of other religions or as we meet with people who just want to say hey you know all roads lead to heaven how can it be that there's so many different diversities of faith how could how could God even let that kind of thing happen give us a couple of ways forward in those conversations well the ways forward in those conversations is knowing that Christianity is more than just an abstract concept called religion. Uh, Christianity is uh, believing in the truth of the Bible in the history of the world. That sin entered into the world and the corruption and death in a variety of religions precisely because Satan uh, tempted Adam and Eve to not believe what God says. And as a result from that moment until now, people have been offering substitute words or putting words into God's mouth that are not actually God's word. And so you have to accept in your conversations with other folks that they probably haven't thought about how all-encompassing religion is, uh, or, or the Christian religion is. It speaks to every facet of our life. It even speaks to every facet of world history. Uh, so that every time somebody asserts something that sounds spiritual and nice, and yet it is not Christ and his death on the cross for our sin, it does not come from God. It is not going to be salvific at all. Now, thanks be to God that, that even though the accusation is made against Christians and Christianity, that God is especially a cruel tyrant, according to Christianity, because there is unbelief and hell and death and sin, and that the accusation is that he unjustly condemns people to death who had not heard the gospel or had not had opportunity to hear the gospel. In fact, the, the Holy Scriptures teach a merciful God in this. He was just in letting the world suffer sin and his condemnation and wrath. But instead of, of in, injustice, letting it suffer his condemnation and wrath because of its unbelief at his word, his creative and redeeming word, he sends his son to redeem the world and to save it through his blood. 
And from the time of Christ's ascension until now, until the time of Pentecost until now, uh, the word of mercy and life has been uh, uh, has gone throughout the world, and the Holy Christian Church is being gathered to God. A reconciled creation uh, is is what actually comes as a result of God's interaction with this world. Uh, and so I would have to so make sure you insist with your friends who try to talk about how immoral the Christian religion must feel to them or sound to them. Insist upon Christ as the demonstration of God's mercy, and how God's mercy is. Uh, published and proclaimed throughout the world, wherever you hear a Christian sermon of how God has died for sin through Christ, uh, through Christ's death, right? And, and, and also, uh, uh, and how God desires this word uh, to, to not just stop at Jerusalem, but to expand from there, to go to all the nations, all, all the Gentiles, so that they would too hear, believe, and be reconciled to him. That's fantastic. That's Pastor Brian Flammy of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Thank you for, for being my guest this hour. We'll take up another difficult question next week on Cross Defense. This is uh, talking now about the problem of religious plurality. As soon as Jesus had a birthday, as soon as Jesus had a hometown, as soon as the atoning sacrifice of his cross had a place, Golgotha, outside of Jerusalem, then salvation became exclusive. The love of God is not abstract. The love of God is a historical uh, historical fact, and that is the basis of our Christian exclusivity. And any move away from that exclusive claim of the mercy of God is a move away from the love of God in Christ. God be praised that Christ has died and Christ has risen, and all of that is for us. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Thanks for listening to Cross Defense. We'll talk to you again talk with you again next week. God's peace be with you. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. Thanks again for downloading the Cross Defense podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, especially Pastor Flammy and his insights on both Hume and, and Schleiermacher. This is fantastic to know the origins of the problem of religious pluralism, at least that we have it today. If this was helpful for you, uh, please do share it with the people that you think would benefit from it. That's how word gets around, and we appreciate you sharing uh, the good news and the peace that Jesus gives in his very specific death and resurrection for you and for me and for all, for all people. God be praised. Talk to you next week.